just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today's episode is with Hayley Greer, who was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis just as she was leaving high school, moving out of home and ready to start her life at university in Wellington. In this episode, Hayley explains what that first year uni life was like post-diagnosis, the years of remission she experienced soon after, and then the next big flare, which led her to be in hospital over New Year's and having a subtotal colectomy, to eventually live life with one less major organ and an ileostomy. Hayley also speaks about how being diagnosed and having many surgeries has affected her mentally, which I personally really resonated with. And little did we know, but we actually recorded this episode on World Ostomy Day, which feels very fitting. I can't wait for you to listen, and as always, let me know what you think. Welcome to That's So Chronic. I am so excited to be chatting to you today, Hayley, because when I was looking through my notes and sort of piecing everything together. We first connected in January of this year and it is now October. So I am so excited that we found a time and were able to make this work. And thank you for sharing what you're about to share with us on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm really excited to finally be on here. So (laughs) yeah, really looking forward to chatting. Yay. Now, as your Instagram bio says, you are living life with one less major organ. Mm -hmm. You were diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 2014 and before we chat a little bit more about how your diagnosis went and the journey that the last seven or so years have been I would love to know your definition of ulcerative colitis if someone who is listening has never heard of it before how would you describe what it is well whenever I talk to someone or try and like explain the condition that I had because technically I don't still have it but I'll come back to that later I people tend to have already heard of Crohn's disease that seems to be the more familiar disease out there that people are aware of and so kind of just start with that whether they know what Crohn's disease is and then kind of move into ulcerative colitis but basically the way I would describe it is uh, a bit of kind of like IBS because people are also very familiar with IBS but just so much worse than that in terms of symptoms predominantly based around going to the toilet really Mm -hmm. with a lot of pain and just general fatigue and kind of other symptoms of of the disease but yeah I mean ulcerative colitis people generally haven't heard of it it's like I said before more kind of Crohn's disease so it is quite complex and, and hard to understand but Yeah, it just involves going to the toilet, essentially. And is it kind of based more in the large intestine? Yeah, so um, Crohn's disease is the full gastrointestinal tract. 
So right from your mouth, right through to your bottom. Okay. Um, whereas ulcerative colitis kind of just forms within your large intestine. So it can be more severe at times, but then it can also be controlled kind of a little bit easier than Crohn's just because it's kind of isolated to one area. So you were diagnosed with this in 2014 when you were just 17 years old. Mm -hmm. I saw a stuff article (laughs) and it was talking all about your diagnosis. So you're 17 years old. Mm -hmm. How does that diagnosis process look for you? And is diagnosis even the beginning? Because I'm imagining that there were perhaps symptoms before you managed to get a diagnosis? I kind of started getting a few symptoms kind of much earlier than that. And it was put down to different kind of problems like a gastro bug or giardia, I think was one one thing that the doctor thought it may have been. And then that I kind of just continued on living essentially. But the time before I was diagnosed is a bit of a blur now um I just remember I was constantly going to the bathroom and there was a lot of blood and just a lot of pain and so I went through through to see my doctor and got referred to a specialist but it was a really challenging time because I was just about to move to university and I was diagnosed I think a couple of weeks before I moved wow so I Decided to still move and uh, shift my care to Wellington. So I was at a private, under private care here in Wellington for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And where they kind of did a lot of exploratory procedures like colonoscopies just to see, you know, to uh, determine exactly what it was and just kind of get that final answer. So that was really hard because I didn't have my parents here. I, my nana yeah. came along with me to all of my appointments, which was amazing. But yeah, it was just a bit of a struggle that kind of first year of my of uni, just getting diagnosed and getting medications and seeing what would work and what wouldn't, but then also getting the disease under control because it was quite bad at that point. So if I yeah. think back to what I was like when I was 17 years old, I would have felt extremely uncomfortable talking about anything to do with going to the toilet. How was that for you at that time? Yeah, well, it was really hard because I had, I was suffering kind of through my last year at high school and and going to the bathroom and not really talking about it with anyone. But then I, you know, did my final exams and then had the kind of summer to just manage this kind of disease and go to the doctor and get that all sorted without being at school or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But in my first year of uni, it was really, really hard. I was in a hall and I was on some pretty gnarly drugs like prednisone. I'm sure a lot of people are aware of prednisone and what it can do, the symptoms and side effects of it. And I was on a hundred milligrams of that at one point. And if anyone who's been on prednisone knows that that's a really, really, really high dose and quite a dangerous dose to be on for a while, but that was what was needed in order to get the disease under control initially. And I was doing all of these different medications like suppositories and enemas to really kind of tackle the disease right where it was where it was you know in in my colon so I was doing that in the hall at night time and I remember we had a fire alarm and I just had put a suppository in and we had to all go outside and that was just 
I laugh about it now, but yeah. it was a bit terrible at the time. But yeah. coming back to the prednisone, I put on about 15 kilos and um, really swelled up, really got the moon face, which yeah. is like the classic symptom. And a lot of the people in the hall didn't know what was going on and what was happening. And I I only shared it with kind of the cl- people I was closest to, which were a few girls um, and guys on my floor. So yeah. yeah, it was really hard to navigate that in my first year. And I want I needed to get a job initially just to have a little bit of extra income to get me through that first year and I was there for two or three weeks before I had to to quit because I just couldn't be there and yeah it was just really really hard to to navigate that as a 17 year old without my parents there for support and that yeah when you were Mm. then diagnosed with ulcerative colitis did you know anybody with it as well or like had you even heard of it before I hadn't heard of it before I was yeah quite confused and you know it was you've got inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis sits under that umbrella and this is what you've got Mm -hmm. but I knew nothing I knew no one that had been diagnosed with that illness you know at school or anything now looking back I actually realized that there actually were quite a few girls at my school who had had ulcerative colitis and I, I wasn't wow. aware but of course I wouldn't know yeah. that which is funny it's kind of looped background which is quite yeah. nice but <laughs> I and I'll talk about this probably in a little bit in terms of the role that Instagram has kind of played with my disease and kind of being accepting of everything but initially when I was diagnosed I did a lot of googling yeah and a lot of searching on Instagram and it traumatized me because I just saw these girls with scars and bags and I thought there's no way I could live with that. I couldn't do that. And so I just I just didn't look. Um, yeah. I didn't seek out any information because it just scared me too much, which is ironic now. But back then I just I just couldn't cope with it. So I kind of just took it as as it came and listened to my surgeon, the gastroenterologist, and just kind of went with what they had to say and didn't really do too much other research myself. So you were offered treatment when you were first diagnosed with the steroids and other types of treatment. Did they also mention anything about diet or food? Was there any sort of special considerations that you had to do in terms of that? And how did that look living in a hall? Yeah, so some of the food within the hall really didn't sit well. And I would try it and instantly have to you know, run to the bathroom. Spicy food was always a no-no, but it was just a lot of test and learn and try different foods and see what worked and what didn't. But I know that a lot of people have had to make huge diet adjustments, you know, go gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free to manage their disease. But I feel like I've been pretty lucky in that aspect where I didn't have to make too many adjustments to what I was eating. I remember my gastroenterologist said to me, if there's if you can't get anything down and if you can't keep anything down, go to McDonald's and get yourself a fillet of fish because it's it's so, I don't know why, but he yeah. just was like, it, it's the one thing that will probably stay down and stay in. So go and get wow. one of those. And I thought that was a bit interesting. But it's, yeah, I just think that there's just a lot of, it's, it's different for everyone, I think. Yeah in terms of diet and I think I've been pretty lucky with with that aspect in terms of my disease so during that first year when you were the first year uni what were your symptoms like like how would you describe how ulcerative colitis felt in your body the main main symptoms were urgency 
so in a peak flare urgency to go to the toilet so I I had to run and luckily I my room was close to a bathroom which was good I did have accidents though where even though it was a couple of meters down the hall I still didn't make it yeah blood in your stools kind of mucusy type stools and just a lot of pain those are kind of the main symptoms but then there's others that I probably didn't recognize at the time but Mm -hmm. now I know the fatigue and just you know lack of energy and motivation for just daily tasks because you're just so tired all the time from getting up in the night all the time to go to the bathroom or just no energy from from food and that kind of thing so you can go to the toilet multiple multiple times a day um, when you're in a peak flare so yeah yeah and I guess that means that like nutrients aren't staying in your body from food then yeah I I was pretty unhealthy for you know that first kind of year I did the prednisone made me put on a lot of weight and Mm -hmm. so it was a little bit it wasn't a good replica of how I was feeling in terms of my health because regardless the prednisone was going to keep all of the water that was in my body and I would you know puff out essentially but the food in the hall wasn't the most nutritious anyway but but, yeah you just it's just hard to kind of absorb the nutrients just when you're in a flare because they just don't stay in your body wow so yeah I was you know very unhealthy while I was managing that at the time. Did the steroids and the medication eventually work? Did the symptoms start to settle down? Yeah, so I was originally going to a private gastroenterologist at Wakefield Hospital, and because I was seeing him so regularly, he asked whether I wanted to move into the public system and go to Wellington Hospital because it can get quite expensive going private. Yeah. So I moved to Wellington Hospital and saw a different gastro doctor and he put me on a couple of different sets of medication and we slowly got off the prednisone. So about three quarters of that first year was managing the flare and getting it to a you know, a good place. And then things just kind of dramatically improved. And uh, wow. towards, I know it's just ridiculous. Towards the end of the year, I was off prednisone and on a couple of medications that I was taking daily to kind of manage my disease. And then eventually got into remission. And when you say remission, does that mean that you weren't having to take that medication anymore? No. So I still had to take the medication to keep to keep myself Mm -hmm. in remission but it just meant I didn't have those symptoms my bathroom patterns were were normal you know I wasn't going up you know 10 plus times a day and there wasn't blood and pain it was just normal as normal can be so yeah but I still had to continue to take that medication and then eventually remission stops I think from my research, it was around August 2019. Yeah. And things just took a little bit of a turn for you. Yeah. So I had some really, really good years. Um, I got my health back on track. I lost all of that prednisone weight that I'd put on and was in a really, really good position and was going out and kind of enjoying my life again. And then I think there's a number of factors that potentially kick-started the disease again just due to stress Mm -hmm. we were renovating our house at the time and I was working a really really busy job and coming home and just not resting and probably looking after myself as much as what I needed to and 
had a flare again uh-huh. and probably didn't get on to seeing a gastroenterologist quick enough. You know, there's all sorts of reasons I can look yeah. back on about when I started noticing symptoms again, but it just got progressively worse and worse and worse. And so what were those the same symptoms that you had in that first year of diagnosis? Yeah, so uh, I was noticing blood again yeah. and urgency Uh, having to run to the toilet and just really really bad cramping and you know in the peak flare I was going to the toilet between 25 and 30 times a day yeah with pain and it was just awful you know I probably left it a little bit too long and then I eventually went to I my care got transferred from Wellington Hospital to Hutt Hospital because I moved out to Lower Hutt with my partner and went and saw the gastro team there and spoke about a couple of different medical uh, medicines to try that could potentially help because the medicine that I was on uh, I couldn't tolerate anymore it would make me nauseous and and it also stopped working for me so we explored kind of some other different medicines to try before surgery would need to happen. So what were those medications that you were trying before surgery? It was a biologic, which is kind of the strongest medication that you can try for inflammatory bowel disease before surgery is required. So that is, it was called infliximab and it was going to be done via IV. Mm -hmm. So I spoke about, I spoke to the gastroenterologist about that and moving into that medicine in the new year to kind of get the disease under control and it was I had so much excitement about that because it was this miracle drug that was going to make me all better and I'd go and sit in the hospital and you know have an IV for a couple of hours and then I wouldn't be back for another three months to have my other one so it was phrased to me and I interpreted it as you know the miracle drug that was going to fix me and and it didn't. Okay. I, yeah, I went to hospital on New Year's Eve because I was going, you know, over 20 times a day and I was, you know, malnourished. I was losing weight. I yep. was dehydrated. And I was due to start that infliximab medication in the new year. So they bought my first dose forward. So I did that on New Year's Eve. Wow. New Year's Eve and your first <laughs> dose of infliximab. I know. <laughs> I was on the ward and I could hear the fireworks oh. outside of people celebrating New Year's and I was in hospital yep. and it was just terrible. And just throughout that month, because I was in hospital on and off for about a month, I reacted to infliximab. Oh, so okay. I had an allergic reaction to it, was in and out of hospital dealing with infection and really raised inflammatory markers. And I got an eye infection and all sorts of stuff throughout that month before they just called it quits and said, look, you know, you clearly aren't reacting to infliximab. So we're going to have to take your colon out. Which is a subtotal colectomy. It is. So talk us through this time. How were you feeling at that possibility? Well, I it's it's quite a long story in terms of that that whole month for me. So it was January 2020 of last year. I'm ready. I've got my cup of tea. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
I was reacting to infliximab. I would have about five day stays in hospital before I'd mm-hmm. come home in the hope that things would improve. And then I would get worse, go back into hospital, do another five day stint, come home, back and forth, back and forth. I think it was about my second of my fourth stay in hospital where they said, you know, if infliximab's not going to work and it looks like it's not going to, we're going to have to resort to surgery. Yeah. And I was told about the surgery by a really, uh, I don't want to use the word awful, but he just no bedside manner in terms of the surgeon that came and told me and just was laughing about it and that kind of thing. And this was huge for me. I was, yeah. how old was I? I was 23 at the time, 23. And, you know, a surgeon's telling me that they're going to cut me open and pull out my colon and I would live with a bag, maybe temporarily, maybe permanently, and didn't answer any of my questions. And it was just a really, really overwhelming time for me. Yeah. Um, luckily, my mum was there next to me, so that was – but it was just awful. I wanted him to leave the room, and yeah, he didn't provide any kind of support, which was awful at the time. And is really just not the way to go about this whole situation, right? Like, no, and yeah. I understand that they – had that conversation with they probably had that conversation with a lot of people you know weekly or daily for them and it may not seem like a big deal but it's massively life-changing for the person that you're telling and it was just a really really awful experience and the way that I was told initially but I managed to go home after that and so surgery didn't happen I went home and just in the hope that I would get better, but it just, I just got worse and worse and started developing eye infections and my, my whole face just swelled up and yeah. my eyes and everything. And was I was still going to the toilet, you know, 25 times a day. So back into hospital. And by that point, I was so unwell that I was just like, I just need to have the surgery and like get this thing out of me yeah. because I think if they'd left it, any longer it would have been dangerous for me and it you know was a bit of an emergency surgery in the end so they did a the moment I was told I would be having the surgery I was on my own and they took me down to I think it was a it was the weekend so kind of the area wasn't open and full of patients they took me down to the endoscopy suite and Mm -hmm. had another look at my colon did a sigmoidoscopy and I was awake and which you which you are when you have them done and the gastro doctor she said that my colon was severely inflamed so that they would be taking it out by the end of the week wow and I was on my own yeah in an empty room kind of her telling me that and she was she was great yeah but yeah it was by that point, I, you know, knew it was coming. It wasn't a complete shock to me like that first time, but it was still really, really hard to kind of accept. Is there much support in like how your life is going to look once the surgery is done? Like, are they able to explain what you can do, what you perhaps can't do or how, what the future is going to be like? Yeah. Or is it just like, you're getting the surgery, see you later? 
the people that were, you know, telling me that I was going to have the surgery kind of aren't involved with the after. Okay. So they, you know, said I would have the operation and I was busy kind of getting prepared for, for that operation. So I ended up having the operation, which was, I think, about four hours long. And then afterwards, they took me to ICU, which I, you know, never really accepted, like, the severity of of how unwell I was and knowing that I went to ICU afterwards and, you know, just shows how serious the operation was, but also how really, really unwell I was. So I went there after the surgery and kind of just proceeded to take it day by day in terms of getting better and recovering from the surgery itself. And then I had a snowman nurse. So, so basically the surgery resulted in me having a temporary ileostomy, which is a stoma. And I had a, a stoma bag, an ostomy bag, which is, you know, stuck to my stomach to catch the waste that comes out of the stoma. So they took my entire large intestine out. Okay. Uh, l- lucky they did it laparoscopically. So I don't have a, you know, a big, huge scar. I've just got a couple of little scars, which is wow. okay. Isn't technology just amazing that they're able it to do this? It really is. I had the best surgeons um, doing my operation and it's actually quite funny because the surgeon who I, the gastroenterologist who I saw in Wellington when I moved up to up here from Nelson, that first time at Wakefield Hospital, he's the one that ended up doing my surgery. Oh, amazing. So it's almost a bit full circle and meant to be. I was reading that with the ileostomy Mm -hmm. there are two usually generally two main types there's end ileostomy and loop ileostomy would you be able to explain a little bit more about how that worked yeah so the end ileostomy I mean I don't know a huge detail but end ileostomy is where they take the end of your small intestine and bring it outside your body so it's like this little kind of circle piece of organ sitting on the outside of your stomach Mm -hmm. and then the bag kind of sticks over the top of that to capture any waste my understanding of a loop ileostomy is they take the small intestine and they essentially cut it in two okay so people get loop ileostomies when they are undergoing a j-pouch surgery okay so a j-pouch surgery is creating a pouch out of your small intestine that eventually kind of gets sawn to your bottom to collect waste before kind of being released into the toilet. So J-pouch surgeries are an option for those with ulcerative colitis to get rid of the bag. Okay. It's, they almost phrase it as like to, you know, reconnect your internal plumbing (laughs) so that you go to the, the toilet the normal way again. So the loop ileostomy is, the J-pouch surgery is made up of three steps. Yeah. So you get your um, end ileostomy and then your large intestine is removed and then you recover from that surgery. And then they create a pouch out of your small intestine and kind of disconnect it up the top by around your stomach so that the pouch can heal out of one end of the small intestine and then you can continue to do your waste out of the other end. It's all very complex. Yeah. And then the final surgery is called the takedown. So they kind of connect the loop back together. So it's like one big pipe almost. 
I feel like we need, you know, like in science class where there's like a skeleton yeah. and then all the like you things. You definitely need <laughs> diagrams to understand yeah. it because it's very complex and even I still don't fully understand it. But yeah, I'm slowly learning because hopefully a J-pouch surgery will be an option for me. I was going to say, so the surgery that you got was so hopefully in the future, the J-pouch surgery would be a possibility for you. Yeah. And that's what my surgeon said from the start in terms okay. of what he wanted to do was the ileostomy would be temporary and eventually he would do a J-pouch to kind of get rid of the bag and put everything back inside essentially so that I could go toilet out of my bottom again. Is there any sense of a time frame of like how long temporary is? Yeah, well, normally it's kind of six to 12 months. You have your major surgery and then you wait kind of six to 12 months before they start going through the process of um, talking about a pouch and then eventually doing it. And that was always the plan for me was to kind of wait six to 12 months to heal from my colectomy and then start the conversations around having the J-pouch. But unfortunately, I got a few other complications from my surgery and I was dealing with last year uh, a lot of abscesses in the perianal region and fistulas caused from that as well. So unfortunately, the J-pouch surgery won't happen for me for some time until I can heal those other things. So, you know, the the big colectomy surgery was supposed to fix everything and that was my impression but it it didn't for me I had a lot of complications so yeah that that's been hard to deal with. With the fistulas and the abscesses have they had to operate to help that or I was reading that you could sometimes they might respond to antibiotics or medication but then the other option is surgery to try and remove them. How has that looked for you in this past year? Yeah, so I started developing abscesses in July last year. Okay. And I, since then I've had seven surgeries to wow. have them drained. Yeah. And sometimes they put drains in them to keep them open. Okay. Sometimes they put little setons in, uh, which are like these little kind of rubber bands almost that keep the fistula trapped open so that it can continue mm-hmm. to drain. So yeah, I, you know, each of those surgeries I was put under and that has its own effect on the body in terms of having a general anesthetic that many times and having to recover from that. But then also being in pain and dealing with abscesses and the constant like anxiety in the back of your head about how long is this going to last? You know, I'd have a surgery and, and come home and then it would just be, you know, the thoughts in my head of, right, how long is it going to be until I have to go back? And for a period of time, I think it was, you know, three or four months, I was in the hospital every two or three weeks. Wow, yeah. And I had a full-time job at that point, and they were already so amazing about, you know, my big surgery that I had and were about these little surgeries. But, you know, there's only so – people only have so much patience and um, obviously it was – completely out of my control but it was something I majorly struggled with in terms of my life kind of always being on hold whenever I'd had to go back in and thinking that was my last one I won't be going back and then it happening again in two weeks so that was that was probably the hardest thing to deal with. Did having the surgery and having an ostomy bag now did that help the ulcerative colitis symptoms 
you know, I would go, every time I'd go into hospital and for these abscesses, they'd say, how's your stoma going and everything. And every time it was, my stoma's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had a few kind of issues with my skin and around it and that kind of thing, but I have an amazing stoma nurse who has helped me through that. And, you know, she's fantastic and just, you know, number one support person. So that's been really, really great. So the stoma side of things has been amazing and a dream. Yeah. It's been a lot easier than what I thought it would be, but you know, and I would have been really, really happy last year and just, you know, getting on with living my life if it wasn't for these other complications. Yeah. And I think that was the hardest part was they were related in a certain way, but they were also completely separate and one didn't influence the other, but it was just the overarching inflammatory bowel disease that was causing these problems. And, yeah, you know, the surgery, as I said before, the surgery was supposed to fix that and it didn't. So that was a real kind of eye opener. And even the surgeons at the hospital just, you know, were baffled as to why I needed to keep having surgery and why it wasn't getting fixed and everything. So, yeah, it was a bit of a challenging time for everyone, I think. But in terms of the stoma, it was it was a, a dream at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions or misinformation around ostomy bags, stoma, everything. Especially I was reading on Instagram that you can't like that you can't swim I say with inverted commas Mm -hmm. can you talk us through some of this misinformation that's out there and perhaps what you thought going into it and what is actually not the truth yeah well you know I said before that when I was first diagnosed I would look on Instagram Mm -hmm. under you know ulcerative colitis and find other girls who had had it and I was traumatized about their scars and their bags and you know, there's no way in hell I would ever have that, you know, I'd rather die, that kind of thing. And it's just so wrong. I just wish I could go back and tell myself that you're going to be fine and it's actually going to improve your life so much more than what you realize. But that first surgeon who came and told me that I was going to be having the surgery, the really awful one, Mm. he told me I couldn't swim with an ostomy. And he's telling people, all the time that they may have to have the surgery and it's just false information and it's a it's a like it's a minor thing you know yeah but I had five minutes to ask questions about what would my new life be like since having the surgery you know would I be able to swim can I eat you know am I going to have to completely change my diet and that kind of thing and the information that they were providing gave me no reassurance but it was actually all false Yeah. So I think there's, yeah, there's just a lot of misconceptions and because it's dealing with poo, it is so taboo to talk about and no one wants to talk about it, but everyone goes to the bathroom. Yeah. Ideally every day. Even the queen. Yeah. Even the queen. And it's just (laughs) so normal and disabilities are, you know, stigmatized. And I just think that there's so many of us out there in the community that have ostomy bags and it is just so normal yeah. and people are getting them unfortunately more and more these days for various different things like bowel cancer and all these other you know illnesses and diseases that we don't even know about and I just think it's phrased as it's the end of the world but it's not it was a few months ago there was in the news a young boy 
was told he needed an ostomy bag and he said he'd rather die than have an ostomy bag. And that really upset kind of the ostomy community because we all are out there living our lives now instead of not being able to leave home, you know, being too afraid to find a toilet and that kind of thing. You know, these bags have given our lives back and, you know, people are saying they'd rather die. But then I do get it because I was feeling that at one point before you know what it can be like so yeah and that's why it's so important to share stories like yours so that the word can get out yeah and that's that's why I do it because you are really open on your Instagram at Hayley Greer obviously everything will be in the show notes so people can click on that to find your Instagram is this what's inspired you to be so open about your journey yeah I initially it was because a, a number of reasons mainly was to keep a lot of family and friends up to date with what was going on because I had a lot of people interested yeah wanting to know how I was and that was just the best way to kind of tell everyone all at once was this is the update this is what's happening the second one for me majorly was the fact that talking about it helped me get through it yeah if I didn't talk about it or I bottled it up I just would lose it and having people that were interested and would ask questions and would allow me to explain what I had been through and what had happened really helped me come to terms with it myself. Yeah. I remember a friend, a couple of friends came and visited me after the surgery while I was at home kind of recovering and they took the time to take an interest in the surgery that I had had and, you know, what had happened. And, you know, my partner afterwards was like, I haven't seen you kind of this happy for a long time because you were able to tell them what was going on. And it it just, I would much prefer people ask than people be too afraid to kind of ask because it's sensitive. So yeah, those were kind of the main reasons why I started sharing. And then I met a lot of incredible people on Instagram after my surgery, who a couple of them I've actually met in real life, which has been incredible. And I feel like they're some of my closest friends, even though I met them through an app, but just sharing our struggles and, you know, our stories, but then also how we're thriving now, I think is really important. And the amount of times I've had people message me saying I'm about to have the surgery or the surgery could potentially be something I will have in the future. And this has really, really helped me. It's been amazing. And that's just solely the reason why I continue to share it because I think that's so important. Yeah, I totally agree. Speaking of Instagram, I was looking through a Q&A that you had on your stories and somebody asked about whether you lost your hair during the surgery. What is that about? Yeah. I know nothing about yeah, this. Yeah, I, I don't think it's anything to do with the disease or anything itself I think my body just throughout that time just went into shock okay from the constant medication and just being so unwell and then the major surgery that I went through that my hair just kind of started falling out and I would just you know have a shower and just get clumps come out so yeah it's it's something that I've spoken to with other fellow ostomates we call ourselves yeah. and they all experience the same thing with their hair falling out after surgery so I'm not sure what it is but it's grown back now and it's good so I think it was just a temporary thing yeah yeah throughout this whole journey has there ever been a moment where you've just sat down and gone why is this happening to me yeah I had a lot of that after 
you know, early last year after I got home and was in the recovery stage, you know, why did I have to get sick in the first place and why has this happened to me? And then it happened a lot when I was back in hospital dealing with all of the, the abscess drama. Yeah. But I think ultimately I can't think back to me getting sick in the first place. I think I try to always look at it as, well, this has improved your quality of life. Yeah. You know, tenfold by having the surgery because I couldn't leave home when I was flaring and I had accidents in public places and that is just mortifying. So I've definitely had my fair share of why me. But I think the biggest struggle has been coming to terms with the fact that, you know, my old life and what my life could have been, that's been a real struggle. Yeah. And what my future is going to look like and how it's going to be different now that I've had the surgery, you know, whereas if I hadn't had it, what it would have been like. And I think that's something that there isn't a lot of conversation around and being diagnosed with something, it is a grieving process of grieving or mourning the life that you kind of thought you were going to have. Yeah. And it is such a big thing mentally to overcome. Yeah, that's that's been the hardest part, I think, is the mental struggle that I've had. And I, I saw a lot of help after the surgery in terms of, you know, a lot of workplaces do EAP at now. And so I, I utilised that. And then also did a bit of counselling through the hospital as well, which was really, really good. But yeah, I think, yeah, the biggest thing is just, you know, dealing with the loss of who you were, but also who you could have been and how that's, that's different. I'm lucky in terms of what I've been through, not having a huge effect on, you know, my day-to-day life. Yeah, It's, it's pretty much the same. There's a few things that I've had to adapt, but it's, it's mainly, mainly the same and better now, but there's big things like um, fertility and having children that weighs on my mind and, and is a big thing for those that have undergone these surgeries because they're so um, invasive. Yeah. So that's a big, big thing that I've had to deal with. And how are you feeling now? Are, are the abscesses still causing drama? How do things look as we're nearing the end of 2021 for you? They're, they're looking pretty good. I am healing a lot with my fistulas and should hopefully get to a point soon where they will be fully healed and we can start talking about the next steps for me. But in terms of day-to-day, I feel amazing. I just got a new job, so that's a huge milestone for me. At once, at one point, I thought, there's, you know, how could I even think about getting a new job when I'm in hospital every other week and yeah. having to deal with that kind of stress of the unknown I think that's been the biggest thing for me is dealing with things that are completely out of my control yeah so I've had to learn to kind of cope with that but yeah life is good I am back doing F45 which is something I did uh, before I got sick and absolutely loved and then had to stop yeah Um, so a huge goal of mine was to get back doing that and I'm doing that now so amazing just making little steps in the right direction you know yeah Completing little goals when I can is really, really important. And yeah, I just kind of take each day as it comes. 
that's kind of all we can do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and everybody listening at home today. I have loved getting to know you and I'm so glad that we finally made this happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And as always, it is an absolute pleasure to be bringing you these interviews every Tuesday, wherever you may be listening in from around the world. If you want to know more about Hayley and her story, you can find her on Instagram at Hayley Greer. And if you have any questions or you just want to reach out and connect, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at That's So Chronic. If you haven't already, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts really helps the podcast grow, as well as pressing follow on Spotify or subscribe anywhere else. That helps That's So Chronic get into more ears to hopefully spread awareness, like we chatted about today, and more importantly, hope. <laughs>